Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, Truth Seekers. You're listening to A Measure of Truth on blogtalkradio.com, and I'm your host, Michael Fordham. Look, if you just click the link on my webpage or you're listening on blogtalkradio.com or even the Blog Talk Radio player on my Facebook page and you want to call in live, look, we'd love to talk with you. So give us a call. The number is 347-326-9470. Or if you like, you can tweet me your questions and comments at twitter.com slash a measure of truth. Also, if you haven't yet, why don't you look me up on Facebook? I'm the Michael Fordham with a photo of me in studio. And you can always email me your questions and comments at a measure of truth at gmail.com. Look, we got a great show for you today. We'll be right back after this. In her revealing autobiography, Dr. Tolbert describes how she overcame the obstacles that threatened to derail her aspirations for a sound education and professional career. From humble beginnings, surrounded by dirt roads and segregated schools, left orphaned and penniless at an early age, she chose a path of hard work and diligent study that lifted her out of poverty, despair, and ignorance. In an era of tense racial relations and despite numerous stumbling blocks, Dr. Tolbert rose to prominence as an African-American scientist, educator, and administrator, often in positions traditionally held by males. She eventually became the first African-American female to serve as director of the nation's New Brunswick Laboratory, the first African-American female appointed director of education at the Argonne National Laboratory, the first female to serve as director of the Carver Research Foundation of Tuskegee Institute, 
one of six African-American senior executives at the National Science Foundation. The second African-American to graduate from Brown University with a doctorate in biochemistry. Her journey, however, was no crystal stair. In publishing her tale, Dr. Tobert affirms our human ability to survive the unexpected, rally against adversity, and charge ahead on a path to personal accomplishment. She is a strong role model with an inspirational message for others struggling against overwhelming odds. Dr. Tolbert, welcome to A Measure of Truth. Thank you so much, Mr. Fordham. I am really pleased that you've you've chosen to hold dialogue with me and that you have an audience listening. Um, and I'm really pleased also that the focus is on my book, uh, Resilience in the Face of Adversity, A Suffolkian's Life Story. Well, thank you for joining us. You know, um, I've been reading the book all day. I'm really enjoying um, the backstory. And, you know, as much as I've read, I don't see anything that connects the person that you are today to the person that you were as a child based on your environment and your upbringing. So give us a little backstory. Tell us a little bit about, you know, what brought you to this point in the very beginning, some of those early, early challenges in your life. Oh, wow. That'll take up two shows, but I'll present it. I know. (laughs) (laughs) I I was born in uh, Suffolk, Virginia. That's uh, about 19 miles in from the coast, uh, in from Norfolk, Virginia, and it's very near the North Carolina line, and it's near the Dismal Swamp. Uh, at the time that I was born, it, it, it uh, Suffolk was very rural, and uh, there were about 10,000 people, and we tease each other about that, my siblings and I tease each other about that uh, census data of 10,000, we said they must have painted the pigs and hogs and goats and animals like that. Um, (laughs) In Suffolk at that time, this was the early 40s, um, Suffolk was a segregated uh, city. Uh, People of my race, African Americans and, and of other background other than white, were all lumped into a racial category called colored and you could walk around town as you wish, but you would find that water fountains and restrooms were labeled. The ones for color had a sign on them. The ones for white only had a sign on them. When you went to the movie theater, the movie theater, everybody paid the same price. However, uh, colored people sat in the balcony and uh, white people sat on the main floor. And the city bus was the same way, uh, colored in the back, white in the front of the bus, although we paid the same prices. Uh, So it was an interesting time, very interesting time. My mother and father died early in in, uh, life. My mother was about 30 years old, and uh, my father lived a few years after that, and he was in his early 40s when he died. So my siblings and I, and there were six of us, we lived with different people 
when our mother died, we deal, lived with different people in the neighborhood. We had moved with her from the Saratoga section of Suffolk into another colored section called South Suffolk. And, uh, of course, at that time, I, I'll share with you that uh, my mother and father had separated at that time. And so, yeah, and um, talk a little bit about that, too, because, you know, things were very hectic in the household. Um, and, right. you know, people, well, the conditions you were living in were tough enough. But, you know, you described them with, you know, a great deal of affection, almost as if you, you sort of missed the times. But it was only those things that stood out in your, your mind, um, the relationship. Right. Um, with your mother and father and those things. Just talk a little bit about that background and what developed quickly after. Well, let me let you know that I don't wish for the good old days. I like mm, current I hear you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, but the information I put in the book uh, is true. And, and as much as I could, I even uh, gave footnotes to indicate uh, – uh, to substantiate the the information that I included there. Uh, my mother and father had a turbulent relationship, so I would say that I lived in a dysfunctional family when my mother and father were together. And um, although we didn't call it uh, uh, PTSD, I believe, mm-hmm. when military men came home and they had difficulty mentally, I do believe that that was the condition of my father. But he mm-hmm. did work. Uh, he he did work for R W Askew, a landscaping company, and so did some of my cousins work for that same company. My mother was a domestic worker, and um, one white family that she worked for was the Oberry family, um, and they uh, that family and the others for whom she worked really liked her work. But often when she came home, she was really tired, but she still took time with us, the children, to teach us things about life. And, and she taught us how to exercise and, and to dance and to sing and the like. So, so we had a wonderful time. Her relationship with our father's uh, mother, because my grandfather was deceased long before I was born, I don't, do not think that her relationship with uh, my father's mother was 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 good. Uh, it was not good, in other words. So I never saw them get together and have a social time together. But uh, my grandmother was about a block away. Actually, we could see the house from where we lived in the neighborhood. We could see our grandmother's house. We went over from time to time because our cousins were there. And, you know, kids play, and so we played with them and the like. Uh, but it was turbulent living in the house with my father because he would lose his temper. And uh, we managed to learn what to do in those times. And so there's a part in the book where I describe an incident where uh, he was chasing us for a reason, and I advise the readers to get that book and read that section in particular because it is very interesting. And I said, I don't want to go back to those days. Uh, we survived. We, my siblings and I survived. My older two siblings got married at an early age, at early ages, I should say. Both were not at the same time, but both were uh, 15 going on 16 when they got married. <clears throat> Can you imagine Imagine that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they moved uh, away. 
but let me go back a bit. Uh, we had I mentioned that we had my, with our mother we had moved into the south section of town. While over there, our mother got sick, and uh, at the time there was a major hospital in the city, but. Uh, I don't know if my mother did not go to that hospital because she didn't have insurance or the money or because it was for white only. I don't know the answer to that. And I clearly say so in the book. Um, but so she was at the what's considered the colored hospital in, in the area in Suffolk. And there she died. Uh, conditions there uh, I would describe is menial. Uh, there were beds. Um, the nurses did as best they could with the conditions. Um, so so um, uh, after her death, that was when we lived with different families. So um, after a while, our grandmother came and got us and took us to her house. And it was interesting because <laughs> she had some beautiful things in her house, like uh, crystal and the like, and uh, we, as six children, eventually broke all of that beautiful uh, depression glass and uh, crystal and the like. As we used yeah. it, we might dropped it and whatever. So eventually, we were using mayonnaise jars in uh, preserve jars used for preserves to have water. We had a pump on the back porch. There was no running water in the neighborhood, and we didn't get electricity until about. 1952, uh, the sewer, were, the ditches were the, the ones to take away the sewer, and there were no inside toilets, so the toilets were outhouses outside. Uh, services for the community were limited. We had there was a rescue squad that came in times of trouble, uh, so we just learned to live with what we had. And interestingly. We we didn't know that we were that poor <laughs> because when you're in a situation where everybody else is about at the same level, you don't even question it. You just live. So right, right. While at while at my grandmother's house, I uh, was of age to attend kindergarten, and there was a kindergarten right there in the neighborhood. It wasn't one of those uh, what you say state controlled one. It was just that a lady had opened up a a room. Uh, near her house, uh, she had built a structure near her house, in her yard, and the children came for kindergarten each each weekday, and we learned different things that got us ready for first grade. But because I was born in November, I turned seven in my first grade year, and you know what that means that by the time I reached my senior year in school. I was older than most of the students there, but that was mm. neither here nor there. I I did my well, best. And, well, Doctor Tolbert, uh, tell us a little bit about your grandmother too, because she was an educator for a while, and um, you talked about in the book yeah. that she actually had passed for white for some time, <laughs> and was able to hold a job teaching. Tell us about what transpired after that. <laughs> right. Well, when when my grandmother was uh, younger. Uh, she was of the complexion and hair texture that if you saw her with a group of white women or white people, you wouldn't be able to pick her out as an African-American. Um, 
So she was able to what they call at the time pass. Uh, so she passed for white to the extent that she even got a job teaching at a white school. Now, uh, that was not in Suffolk. But as she continued uh, to teach, you know how gossip gets around. So someone told on her, and she learned about it. So she quit and moved to another area to keep from being fired or even put in jail or even something else horrible happening to her. Because it was definitely... Uh, forbidden that uh, uh, a colored person would have a job teaching white kids. Uh, So that was just the extent of the segregation that existed there. So in my neighborhood, when I went to grade school, we call it grade school, then elementary school, it was for colored only. But in that came uh, a, a lot of good things for all of us who attended, uh, although the school was poorly equipped, it was not large enough for the number of students in the neighborhood who attended. There were times grade levels where two grades were taught in the same room, which meant that while one subject was being taught at one level, the other group that was in the lower level or the higher level would have to put their heads on the desk and wait until the teacher was finished with that group and then she would come to the one that had the heads on the desk and they would get alert and the other group would put their heads on the desk and wait until that part of the lesson was taught. But when that happened, um, I would be listening to both. Some kids would just be sitting there sleeping or whatever, but I would listen to both and that's how I learned a lot. Time went on. So the... um, when we talk about some of the adversities, um, survive, I survived in a dysfunctional family, moving from house to house, uh, home to home, and I really am delighted that a lot of people took time to help us. Our mother's wish was for us to stay together, and my grandmother helped with that, uh, taking care of that wish. My grandmother, after working, uh, after moving into Suffolk and retiring from uh, getting away from, I should say, the other position in teaching, uh, she worked at Planters Peanut Company. And if you were to see a can of peanuts in the past, now it has on its standard brand, but it used to have Suffolk, Virginia on it. Uh, that was where she worked, at Planters Peanut Company. And it was a huge structure. Uh, uh, facility there in Suffolk where a number of colored people and white people worked. Uh, the most, For the most part, the colored people sorted the peanuts and helped package them, and the others, the white people, were the administrators and the like. Um, so another adverse problem that I dealt with was that I started working uh, at an early age, very early age. I was in elementary school, and when I say working, I was doing things like uh, scrubbing floors. People then who had hardwood floors, you you scrubbed them, and you had to get on your hands and knees and put down that paste wax, and then you buff it to shine it. So I would do that for a small fee, and if the family that I was working for had uh, Venetian blinds, I would wash the blinds for a fee, or I'd help them gather vegetables from their garden and, and as we say, snap the snap beans and uh, help with things like that. Uh, 
so I was diligent at those, and I really enjoyed doing that. Well, my work was not overlooked by a number of people, so I had no loss for a job. And at um, one point, I, I, I wanted to be a Girl Scout, but I, I took the I took a route that was not supposed to have been taken. I knew that the Girl Scouts met at my uh, elementary school in my neighborhood after school on certain days. And I also knew that they served cookies and milk, and I have a sweet tooth. <laughs> so I would go to the meetings, and it was really just because I wanted that milk and those cookies. And finally, the scout leader uh, told me that I couldn't continue to do that, that I would have to join. And, and I, when I asked about what did that consist of, uh, uh, what would that entail, I should say. She told me about it, and I knew I didn't have the money to buy the uniform, to pay the fees, and go on the trip that uh, she talked about. So um, she, this lady, who was scout leader, was a lady by the name of Mrs. Delia Darton Cook. And after several times just talking to me, she just let me come to the meeting, and uh, she asked me if, she, if I would like it if she adopted me. And of course I would like it. <laughs> so I said, but you have to ask my grandmother. And she knew that she would. And she said, that's no problem. And I said, well, she usually sits on the porch in the evening so, so to watch for all of us to come home. And uh, one day she came by. Mrs. Cook came by. Grandma Fanny was on the porch. And her name was Fanny May Johnson Mayo. Uh, she was sitting on the porch, and Mrs. Cook made the approach and asked her about adopting me. And my grandmother's answer was no. Um, but that didn't encourage Mrs. Cook. Uh, she asked if I could come to her house to work for her. And um, work for her meant uh, helping to clean house. Uh, my grandmother said yes to that. And so on Saturdays, I would go over to Mr. and Mrs. Cook's home and do the house cleaning. Well, I thought I was there to do the house cleaning, but to me, what they had me doing was was minimal. Um, they had me do a little bit of dusting, and to me, their house wasn't dirty. Now, think about that. Their house had two people living in it. Our house had 13 or 14 people living in it. It was, it was six of us, our cousins, and my grandmother, and it was about 14 or 15 people living there. So, um, and the house was not by any means as, as lovely as the ones that the Cook family lived in. And they lived in a different part of town. They did not live in Saratoga. They lived in what we call the city part of Suffolk. So they had screen doors. They had wood floors and carpet on some floors. And um, they had inside toilets. And uh, they had grass on their yards. Uh, and the yards were neatly kept. Uh, that kind of thing. So I really admired it. But they had me sit down, and uh, after I did a few chores, I had to sit down and read uh, Jet and Ebony magazines that they kept on their coffee table. And then they had a bookcase with books on them uh, by uh, and or about color people. And so they had me read that. And then eventually they started talking with me about college when I got into high school. 
they would talk to me just briefly about college, and they took me to Virginia State University because they had relatives over there. And we would visit the university, visit people there, and go to football games. Well, I'm not a sports enthusiast, so the football game didn't interest me much. But they would also do other things that were social social activities, like going out to eat and restaurants and the like, things like we didn't get much time to do because my grandmother was an excellent cook, and she was the one that taught my oldest sister to cook. And so the house always had, at our house, we always had something to eat. So um, another thing that uh, was happening in my life was that I gained employment at an early age. But before we move into that, when did you discover, and when did everyone else discover you had this high intellect, that you were very bright? Was it at that point, or had they known before? Well, in in school, once they got me to talk after the first grade, in the first grade, I was shy, although I I am an extrovert. um, I would not talk. Well, one thing that amazed me was that the teacher told me that my birthday was not November 6th. Now, I knew it had to be November 6th because that was the date that my grandmother fixed the chocolate cake with uh, two layers, and it had jelly in between the layers. We all gathered around, and we sang happy birthday to each other, so we all had the same birthday, November 6th. Oh, wow. And she had to convince me that that was not my birthday. That was one thing. And the other, and that was troubling to me. The other was that... Uh, the teacher letting me know that the people that I thought were my brother, the person that I thought was my brother was really my cousin. And uh, other things like that. Well, my grandmother didn't pay attention to those kinds of things. We were all in the house. We, we interacted together. We ate together and the like. So it was okay. You know, I guess it never crossed her mind that we considered each other to be sister and brother. And it was a good way, because even in the neighborhood, there were people we call aunt this and uncle that. Right, uh, right. And they weren't relate blood relatives at all. Yeah. And I'm just learning about a lot of them even now <laughs> at my age. So so it, it, it was an interesting life. So when you were in school, though, did you get exceptional grades? And because of that, um, it was yes. it just the Girl Scout no. incident that got you guys on the radar? Um, it seems like she was attracted to you in some way and thought highly of you and wanted yes. to adopt you. Well, what what happened is my other sister did not, my oldest sister did not do good in uh, elementary school. She quit early. Um, my next sister did not do too good. But I made A's and B's, mostly A's in elementary. And then when I went on to high school, I was in, I was uh, in the honors program and in the testing, it showed that I had a high. Um, aptitude in Mm -hmm. science and math and we had at our high school uh, local and regional contests in those two areas 
and I would always bring back an award or certificate for our school. And there were others at the school who did likewise. But uh, I was the primary one to bring back special awards recognition to the school. And then because of uh, me being able to master those courses in science and math, um, I was given the opportunity, along with a few other students, to take advanced courses that were really not a part of the city's uh, educational program. The teachers decided and counselors and principal just decided, well, these students should be prepared for college, so let's give them that opportunity to study additional work, which was advanced uh, work. And so they prepared us for it, and they helped us in identifying universities and colleges to which to apply in high school. Um, I, and, oh, now, let me go back to when I was in uh, high school uh, again. In addition to working for the Cook family and for a uh, few families in my neighborhood, uh, a, a person that I know who lived in a city near Suffolk, the city is called Chuckatuck, and it was a, a guy named Shirley. And he had contact with a lady who owned a um, resort in the Catskill Mountains of New York. And uh, he knew that they needed maid service in the summertime. So a few summers, I went up there to work. And the owner uh, liked my work. At first, now listen to this, at first I would clean 15 rooms. And when I would do that efficiently, efficiently without, you know, laying off or whatever, uh, she called me in and made me head of the maid service. But it also came with the requirement to clean 29 rooms a day, and and I did it. Well, it wasn't necessarily 29 per day, but I was responsible for 29 because the rooms were not all filled every day. But when it was a rush on, like a holiday, it was really rough. But I managed. And the, the students who came up to work and the other adults who came up to work for the summer, they were very cordial. And uh, we got along quite well, even though I was young, younger than a number of them. The older ones did not object to my being in charge. Um, when I was about to complete my work in high school, um, you know how you I worked on a number of different uh, I participated in extracurricular activities and those included um, the uh, science and math club and believe it or not I was in the modern dance club also uh, and uh, I was a, a co-editor of our high school yearbook and in that yearbook I uh, indicated that I wanted to be a doctor. But in my mind, that was being a physician. To me, that meant that because that was what I saw in the city of Suffolk. There were several colored doctors. And one in particular was a lady, and she had the same first name as I have. And it was Dr. Margaret Reed. And I said, I want to be a doctor like she is. But once I got to college, uh, that was Tuskegee, Uni Tuskegee Institute at the time, and now it's Tuskegee University. Once I got there, I um, 
found out more uh, the broad spectrum of opportunities that there are available for formal being given a formal education in, and one was to stay in chemistry. Mm. The other, there were parts of it too that were uh, discouraging. In that, in uh, if you went into a medical school, there weren't the opportunities to be a research assistant from which you could earn your money to pay your tuition. And right. also, I learned that as you do your internship, uh, you had to stay up sometimes a couple of nights in a row. And I am a person who really requires the eight hours of sleep per night. I cannot stay up overnight and think the next day, think properly the next day. So there were a number of factors that made me just stay at Tuskegee rather than doing pre-med there and going on to medical school. Uh, so I finished in chemistry with high honors, and I had a mathematics uh, minor. You want me to continue, and I will go on because I'm enjoying oh, this. Oh, yeah, I, I'm listening because we're, we're getting to the part now because <laughs> so you went from Tuskegee to to Brown or? No. Um, I went uh, now going back to the family that tried to adopt me that it was that family that uh, uh, drove me in their car from Suffolk, Virginia to Tuskegee, Alabama. And believe me, that was a long ride because at that time, I, route I-85 had not been built. It was they had to go down that truck route called Route 29. Um my school principal and others had taught with me a lot about which college to attend, and almost all of them spoke favorably about Tuskegee. They had been there. They knew people there and the like. And it was a, a comfort that I could – I would be in a comfort zone to be there. Um, when I graduated, the pouring of out of gifts and um, – other encouragements, uh, statements, and the like were just fantastic. And I didn't have to buy much to fill the trunk that I was filling up in order to take to the university. So I finished my work at Tuskegee, and uh, I got married. And I, after getting married there, I decided that I would, uh, my husband and I talked about it, and he had, hadn't finished his bachelor's degree. He had a year or so to go. And I decided that I would go on and do my master's while he was doing his bachelor's. And I went to Wayne State University in Detroit and studied analytical chemistry. I completed it in about a year and a half. And then I returned to Tuskegee to be with my husband. And while I was there, I had my son, our son at the time. And uh, we, we did not manage to stay together, my husband and I. So uh, after working for a while uh, in math, well, I started out after my master's, I worked as a technician on the Tuskegee campus. And then I was invited by the math department head to work teaching mathematics. 
My ideal situation was to teach chemistry, but there were no openings. So I continued to teach math. Uh, recruiters came to the Tuskegee campus for a number of reasons. They came to recruit students to be uh, students at their universities. They came to recruit people to be faculty members and the like, to work on special projects and the like. So when this recruiter came from Brown University, the dean sent him to talk with me. Now, what he said, what the dean said was that this person wanted to give me some information and talk with me about opportunities at Brown University, and I could give that information to my students in mathematics. Because at the time that the person, the recruiter came, it was, the my classes had ended. So as he talked to me, after he finished giving me what we call the spiel, he then handed me uh, some forms. And he asked me to complete a form of my own and I did and I was telling him I'm not interested in going on anymore because see at that point I had decided that I was just going to stop for a while and just work and raise rear my son um, after the recruiter left uh, he called back and asked me to complete the long form that he had left with me because some faculty members wanted to see the full picture of 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 uh, my background, so I didn't give a response. Then I then called mom and daddy, and I've begun to call at their request, the Mr. and Mrs. Cook. I called the mama and daddy Cook, and I told them about what was happening with the recruiter and the fact that he was insisting that I send in the long form, and they helped convince me to go on and complete it. And to go, if whatever I said was in the negative, they gave me a positive. And so they insisted that I go on and do it. And I'm glad that they did. I did go. And even today, as a matter of fact, last week, I received a, a note, a card from my former research professor at Brown University. Hmm. We still keep in touch. We, I keep in touch with a few of my classmates from there, too. So I went on to Brown through the chemistry department. But, you know, when you're in a Ph.D. program, you have to identify a major professor and under whom you would do your research project. And I did not find one in chemistry with whom I wanted to work. You had to, we had to interview – each incoming student had to interview eight faculty members and, you know, get them to sign your card and you note what they said about your being in their group. And so someone suggested that I go over to the, the Division of Medical Science. And I did. And I visited with the Dr. John Nicholas Spain, who was working, his primary research dealt with fat cells, but he had need for a, a research assistant, a student research assistant to do the research for isolated hepatocytes, which would be isolated rat liver cells, drug action on it. And, and in today's terminology, it's called signal transduction. And I got in there and started working, and he liked my work. I had uh, He required reports of data every two weeks. I was on time every time. And uh, I was working with one other person. The whole research team for his laboratory was 18 students strong. And uh, we acted like a family. Um, so all went well with that. I graduated, 
and um, I'm really pleased with the results. Uh, after after graduating, I went. Um, I was able to get a position at Tuskegee in chemistry, and uh, because at that time I was really when I left Tuskegee to do the PhD degree, I really left on leave. Educational leave is was what I termed it, and so I had a job waiting for me when I came back, and uh, I was all set to do that work. <laughs> so, and and I put all of this in my book. Of course, it's you know written to to hold your attention a little better than my talking about it like this. So I advise <laughs> no, the reader right. to get that book, Resilience <laughs> in the Face of Adversity, and right. it's online, and, and read it. But uh, there is more to the story as it goes on. Uh, I'm not very good. Uh, the unsuccessful part of my life has to do with my social, what you say, my marriages. Didn't right, me. right. Yeah, yeah, but you know, given the background, it wasn't my have, fault. But, it wasn't my fault. Uh, well, <laughs> here's the thing. Um, I, I wanted to. I heard the tone that you used when you talked about your your husband, and I, I just left it alone. But um, yeah. the situation that you grew up in, especially with your father, um, you talked a little bit about it. Um, they call it PTSD today, but back then they just called it shell shock. And you heard yes. that term quite a bit, but you never knew really what it was. You know, I thought when I heard the term shell shock, too, that it may have been, you know, something that happened with guys who were in artillery or people who were maybe in submarines or always trying to think of it as, you know, an impact or explosion, um, yeah. something that would happen to you after that. But then when, you know, when you look at PTSD, and, and then you hear, you think back, you understand that it really is someone trying to, to really re-enter society from um, where yeah. they were, where things were not as regimented, where things, uh, we didn't always have a purpose every second and minute of the day, you know. Right. So, yeah, but um, and it's the living with fear, living with fear that. You might wake up, as they say, you wake up dead. <laughs> yeah. yeah uh, that, exactly. That's not possible. But, you know, the, just thinking about it that way. Uh, and so that does something for the person's mind. And mm-hmm. he might think he's in that situation that he has to fight his way out of all of the mm-hmm. time. And the people around him, uh, maybe he didn't realize that these were your, your loved ones, uh, not, yeah. not somebody in the war zone. And right, so right. Just go off the blink like that, and you run yeah, like you mad. You said some really the interesting things about your father, and I'm almost scared to ask you about. But I, I, I may <laughs> say something. But let's let's talk a little bit about your pet chicken first of all. Yeah, I, I thought that that story was done very well. Um, but it, it interested me too the way you decided to just squash your emotions to not about it, not throw a tantrum, not address it at all, but only became quiet for a while. Now, is this something that you always have done? And even when you have conflict in your life thereafter, and you've had a number of different challenges to be able to move forward in a straight line, yeah. um, were you always just 
to that person that would just suck it up, push those emotions down, and not try to allow those uh, the weaker side of yourself to show? I I must admit, I'm not a debater. I would never do good as a debater. Hmm. Uh, I never try to participate in arguments. Hmm. I'm a listener. Hmm. And when something is happening to me, in my mind, I try to figure out what it is and how I can solve it. And by the time that I open up and ask or tell somebody else about it, I've essentially solved the problem. Mm. But I found that sometimes when the problem is so bad for me that I internalize it and it becomes physical. Because um, there have been a couple of times in my life when um, it, it happened to me that way. And, and I love my chicken called 20. And, <laughs> and I, haven't, I haven't resigned myself yet to the fact that 20 came to me whenever I came outside of the house, came running to me, and I felt like greeting me. Um, and, and someone said, well, that was just because you always brought food out to 20. And I said, no, 20 recognized me, and, and, and we were friends. You see, the other chickens didn't do that. Uh, so I knew that 20 was special, and it's, the 20 was special to me. And I liked the fact that 20 was black, I mean shiny black, and had a red uh, cone on his head, and the legs were yellowish, deep yellow. Um, it, was, it, was, it was really heart-wrenching when I learned that we had to, my, my, my mother had cooked 20 and to find out the way that I did. And then I realized that they sent me to the store with my older sister just to get me out of the way until the, the killing of the chicken was done, you know, and the cooking but, and whatever. But you had because I, chicken before and you had no problems with that, right? Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, Oh, but wow. since then, I have never had a pet. Oh, really? Wow. No. no. <laughs> never more. Uh, so that that was it for me for the past. But I think a lot of your success is built around this this strong resolve that you have to make a decision to do things a certain way, to understand what they're impact is and what the result is and to choose the path and the result that you're looking for and just do the work that's required to get there. Right. And that is that is what I do. Because some of the situations in which I've been, people have said, How on earth did you stay in that, you know, situation and all every anybody else would have uh uh turned on the person and told them a piece of their mind, you know what I mean by that, or Mm -hmm. done something else, you know, start swinging or fighting, and I don't do that, and I never do it with people close to me unless I'm, unless, and I notice that I've changed it, unless I am bodily threatened, and when I get to that point, I don't like myself, Mm -hmm. 
I've been in a few situations like that, but I, I really didn't like myself. And it takes me a while to get back into form. After. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, and, and, and even when it comes to talking about my marriage or my marriage is mm-hmm. plural, I've been married twice and divorced. Um, they, I never understood why my husband did what they did. I didn't understand why they did what they did to me or why they did what they did in general, you know, to make the situation un, uh, awful for me. So, so I tried to put it aside, but it took a lot for me to put that in the book. And I said, well, I've, in the book, I have opened up about my personal and professional life to a degree that most people would not do. And I hope that what it will do is is uh, help someone in their efforts or, or whatever by reading about what I went through. Because people looking at me wouldn't think that I've been through what I've been through. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, they, As a matter they, of fact, I, I'm so surprised that you're my neighbor. I've lived in this neighborhood <laughs> for almost 14 years, and we had our first conversation, what, three weeks ago. <laughs> Yes, yes. Yeah. That's amazing. So, that is amazing. Yes. Yeah. And um the the guy who gave me your book, uh, and I've been pronouncing his name wrong years again. I, I remember Silas. Yes, yes. <laughs> it, you know, he raved about you and, and just told me about just how impressed he was with who you are and you know, the stuff he heard from you, and uh, I guess he's read the book as well and understood really. Um, there's a lot of distance between where you came from and where you are today. Yes, I tried to put a lot of distance in between it, <laughs> but now remember, <laughs> remember. Now you must realize that my I'm retired now. And my mm-hmm. my activities now consist of helping helping my family members, uh, my sisters, my siblings, and their children, and particularly mm-hmm. the my son and his my grandchildren uh, to help them. But my contribution is primarily educational. Mm-hmm. Sometimes sometimes it gets to be financial, but it's intended to be educational. And I help. I worked with my brother, and we set up an education fund award system for people in our family who are descendants of our grandmother Fanny and oh, uh, nice. her husband Benjamin. And mm-hmm. if they can show that they descended from that line, or they married into the family, that uh, we give them an award, a financial award, if they are registered and have enrolled in a college or university. Oh, yeah. Hmm. So yeah, uh, I've heard a lot of those through churches and other organizations, but that's the first time I've heard of one just set up by a family. That's a, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah, and so um, writing the book has taken a lot of my time, but I enjoyed it. It made me remember a lot of instances, the circumstances that I was in and uh, how I got out of them and what happened along the way. And I tried to write the book in a way that 
anyone could read it and understand what was going on. Yeah. Uh, in my well, life. From what so, I've read so far, it's very well written. Um, thank you. I, I, I really enjoy those stories. And, you know, I have relatives who came up with the same type of living conditions, but they weren't described in such detail as these were. You had a way of helping people to understand what day-to-day was, right. but also giving them um, a, a good feeling about the how close you were to your siblings. And, um, right. you know, even though your father gave you guys um, a hard difficult um, upbringing and sometimes when you know he was going to his drinking spouts it was something yes. also that bonded you guys as well and who knows right. if it would have been as close if you had not gone through um, some of those um, you know traumatic instances but yeah, um, yeah it's very very interesting because I saw um, you know my parents grew up like that I called my mom and told her the story, and she was like, yeah, uh, that's how I grew up, <laughs> you know, just things like that. But, you know, I hadn't heard it in this type of detail. And um, yeah. to understand, too, for someone to come out and not be bitter about the limitations, go past and beyond those things and be able to experience just about, you know, you, you've traveled the world. You, you, you've um, consulted with countries about things. Um, just give us some of that brief, um, some of your yes. adventures out there, just because of your, your reputation. And then we'll go ahead and, and talk about how people can get your book. Yes. Oh, well, in terms of now, my travel abroad and throughout the, in most states in the United States, those trips to those states, were, for the most part, associated with projects that I was in charge of for the federal government. And, for instance, I was in charge of six science and technology centers that covered the spectrum in terms of science, uh, technology, engineering, and mathematics, and education. And so I, I had to go to several places, major, in, major universities like Case Western Reserve, University of California, Berkeley, um, the uh, university in uh, Hawaii at Manoa, Manoa and uh, University of Kansas. So they were all major universities. But the thing that I carried with me was the drum that said, keep your broadening, use some of what you have in these millions of dollars projects use some of the funds to help African-Americans or uh, minorities, the way I termed it. You broaden participation with it, and they honor that. It, uh, but coming from the federal government, it wasn't just a request. It was an order, and they've done it. And um, so that in the United States was great. I, I did site visits, took in teams of people to review every aspect of these science and technology centers, and the research was diversified. Uh, they, they covered uh, studying the melting of the ice sheets. They covered uh, computer um, security and the aspects of computers. They covered um, many, many parts of, of what people just think about doing. And these centers are doing it uh, with what they have. 
the the uh, there are centers that are studying um, rivers to oceans and the microbial organisms in it. Um, they're studying the um, I mentioned the ice, melting of the ice sheets in Greenland and uh, Antarctica, the uh, making of polymers, and uh, a lot of different uh, aspects of, of research are being studied. Uh, the um, So I was in there, and even the clouds. And then when I went abroad to uh, carry out projects, I visited such countries as Liberia, Kenya, Libya, Senegal, South Africa, Ghana, and the Sudan. And I was in the company of sometimes terrorists, uh, sometimes uh, the kings of different tribes. In Ghana, it was the king of the Ashanti, and you know they have all that gold. I brought home some tinted, real tinted cloth. And uh, these were educational tours to help the different groups. And in Ghana, my reason for taking the team in there was to help them with their national cancer program. In Europe, uh, my trips included uh, countries such as Austria, Belgium, England, France, and Switzerland. And in um, Belgium, I studied, I conducted research there for several months. And uh, in Austria, I was participating as a part of my role as director of the New Brunswick Laboratory. And uh, there, uh, the New Brunswick Laboratory is a network laboratory of the International Atomic Energy Agency. So I had to go in and participate in dis deliberations and uh, decision-making that had to do with the different sites and the training of people in nuclear material. And in my time, uh, oh, yes, in, in two of those countries that I uh, uh did uh, conducted projects in say like uh, Libya and um, Liberia. I had some difficulty <laughs> in Libya. The trip with the team was cut short by three or four days uh, for political reasons. And, and I have to tell you this: I know we're running out of time, but no, in no, Libya, go right ahead. In Libya, I did get to meet Gaddafi. Uh, wow! I and believe me, it was for educational reasons. So for mm -hmm. those that are listening that take care of that, it was strictly educational reasons. And I got to hear the propaganda of how a person speaks about their like or dislike for the United States government versus the United States people. And he made a difference in that. But he also opened doors so that we, the team of women that were there, we were there to tell the women of Libya about uh, take uh, learning and holding uh, professional positions because they were not used to that in, uh, in large numbers. And, and um, we had to run out of that, out of, excuse me, we had to run to get our plane to get out of there because the, in the United States, the United States had uh, dismissed the Libyan diplomats from the embassy in D.C. And we had mm. gone through that oh. embassy to get our orientation. And so if we had stayed, we would have been trapped there. And some said, well, at this point, even though Qaddafi said that uh, he had no trouble with the people of the United States, the people there would have had trouble with these people who, who were yeah. there and right. anything could have happened. In Liberia, it was because of my last name. Remember, uh, recall that the president of Liberia was Tolbert. 
okay. was last name Talbert. And mm-hmm. in the 80s was when I was going in and I was with, leading a team. Um, and it was a team of men. And we were there to review the work of the Teachers Training Institute in Monrovia, Liberia, and to visit the university at Suakoko, which is up country. And when we when it got there, the uh, guards would not let me enter, and I was being detained. And there I was just smiling and carrying on. And <laughs> luckily, a USAID mission person saw what was going on, and he contacted the director of the mission agency in Liberia, and he was told to get us out of there fast. So we were helped in that and seemed that they were after me because they thought that I was there as one of Colbert's daughters coming back for revenge. Now recall that there was a coup d'etat in Liberia and Samuel Doe had taken over and the Talbert had been killed and so had his wife. Mm-hmm. And they thought that I was there for revenge and it, nothing of that at all was I there for. I was there to do the work that I was sent to do and that is to assess the Teachers Training Institute and to have some dialogue with the president of the university there in Suakoko, who was a graduate of Tuskegee. And so I've had some interesting times. Oh, wow. and, and uh, <laughs> I enjoyed every bit of it. And really, I didn't realize the danger I was in until it was over. And that's how slow my... <laughs> <laughs> how slow my mind works when it comes to the negative. Mm-hmm. I will think positive to the very, very end mm-hmm. and um, try to go on from there. So, All right. Well, Dr. Tober, it's time to give your social media and, you know, where people can actually, um, you know, buy your book. I saw that it's on Amazon. Um, are there other outlets as well? Yes, it is on all of the book sale sites. And all you have to do is go to their bookstore online. It's uh, Balboa Press. That's B-A-L-B-O-A-P-R-E-S-S.com. And uh, go to their bookstore and type in Resilience in the Face of Adversity. Or type in my name, Margaret Ellen Mayo Talbert, and the book will come up. And it sells, it's sold in three formats, ebook. Soft cover and hard cover, and um, and I posted the cover on my um, Facebook page as well um, for the I show, both the, the back, so people know what it looks like. You know, I said to myself, "Wow, you know, considering what's inside, the the cover is a little plain, but I guess you left it blank <laughs> just for the movie, right? So, and, you know." Yes. You don't have to change it. So when the movie comes out, and and I'm telling you, I really think that this would be a great movie. Um, it, it's very well done in the way that the story is told, and I really, really enjoyed that. As I said before, generally when I read books for an interview like this, I tend to skip around. But I kept saying, "I'm oh, okay. I'll skip around in a couple minutes." And then I was just Thank reading you. a little bit more, and I, I just kind of got locked in. So I, I'm really, really happy. Now I have to finish it so I can give it back to our, our buddy. But uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> very, very interesting. It's got great pictures, too, and it's documented very well as far as some of the things and your achievements. And um, 
again, I, I'm looking forward to it. And, you know, we probably have to have you back on again and, and talk a little bit more. What I'll do is once I've gone through, we'll, we'll pick out certain areas and, and just talk about those and, and sort of um, sort of drill down. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. And let the readers know that what we talked about today, even though I, we covered a lot, there's a lot more in the book. Awesome. All right. We are out of time. I'm introducing a brand new segment on a measure of truth. Thank you, Dr. Tolbert. I really appreciate you joining us. And again, we will talk with you soon. Thank you. This new segment is called The Motivation. Um, It's sort of like what I started out with when I started doing a measure of truth. It was more about me discussing some of the things that I was going through and my challenges and things that I've learned that I thought that I could share to help someone else as well. So this isn't generally like the commentaries that you may be used to. Uh, Again, it's more personal, and I'll explain that, the motivation. This message is more for me than it is for you. But for some reason, I felt compelled to share it. I have quite a few of these messages that I write, but I tend to keep them to myself, but this one just would not let me tuck it away with the rest. Although I've added and changed a number of phrases to make this message more broad and speak to a more diverse group of those in need, please know that I'm not talking about anyone in particular. This message was first and foremost for me. Welcome to my world. You know, the world has become obsessed with the selfie, a self-portrait that often gives the subject control over how they are portrayed in a given environment, in a photograph that allows them to capture an image of themselves as they want to be seen, but not necessarily the way things actually appeared at the time of the photo. This allows them to make a number of adjustments and corrections to make their appearance, or their life seem far more interesting. When we have too much control over how we appear to others without doing the work, it detracts from who we need to be, and we forget about growing spiritually and not just appearing better. We lose focus on what is true about ourselves, our God-given purpose, the thing that makes us special and unique. Take a close look at your life. Are you where you want to be or are you where you need to be? Well, they're probably one and the same. Well, let me explain. If you're not where you want to be in your life, but you're doing nothing to change the state that you're in, then you must be where you want to be, even if it is just for lack of effort. But sometimes we're in a place in our lives where it's not where we want to be, but still we understand that it's where we need to be in this season in order to gather the knowledge, wisdom, and understanding needed to take us to that next destination. Do me a favor. When you get a chance, close your eyes and think of anyone that you respect and admire and that in your opinion lives a life that you could only dream of or even hope to achieve or surpass their level of success. Think about the things that you admire about them the most. 
their wealth, talent, uh, intellect, or even their swag or ego or confidence. Believe it or not, you will find that the greatest difference between you and them and the key secret to their success in life and the key to yours as well is this small thing that everyone has access to. And I mean everyone, rich, poor, old, young, no matter your race or gender. So that's the good news. We all have what it takes to achieve unimaginable success. But the real question is, do we want it bad enough to do absolutely everything it takes to achieve it? Well, we're about to find out. Most of our life experiences are deeply rooted in a small, seemingly inconsequential events that occur day to day. The choices that we make in our interactions with people, the steps we take towards our personal success in the work that we do, and how we manage and utilize our time, knowledge, skills, and abilities. Each of these bring with it a new or familiar experience an opportunity to use our knowledge and wisdom from past successes or past mistakes to foresee the consequences of our actions so that we will make good decisions and lower our risk of negative outcomes. This thing that has taken over our lives and enslaved us has no regard for a life best lived. It is that day-to-day routine called habit. Yes, your habits are so much a part of who you are that what you do and what you say are all shaped by your habits. When friends or someone who thinks highly of you talks about you, they often describe your admirable traits as a result of your good habits. Conversely, when someone speaks poorly of you, they often speak of things that are lacking that are direct results of your bad habits. You know, just as on the Internet you are who Google says you are, in the real world, you are who your reputation is based on and what your habits portray you to be. Believe it or not, your bad habits are literally wasting your life, stealing your success destroying relationships, siphoning your finances, and leaving you bitter, depressed, angry, and resentful. In short, most of your bad decisions, mistakes, squandered opportunities, love lost, emotional outbursts, rude and reckless behavior, broken relationships, and lack of self-control, and a host of others, are all things that you expertly do without thinking and are all rooted in this silent beast called habit. Wikipedia references the American Journal of Psychology of 1903, and it defines habit this way, and I quote, A habit from the standpoint of psychology is more or less a fixed way of thinking, willing, or feeling acquired through previous repetition of a mental experience. Habitual behavior often goes unnoticed in persons exhibiting it because A person does not need to engage in self-analysis when undertaking routine tasks, So if habits are a fixed way of thinking, surely our bad habits, our brokenness, can be fixed 
And since it is acquired through repetition of a mental experience, it's also something that we can engage in without thinking about. If we create new good habits, in time we will not even have to think about our good habits to reap their rewards. Here's the kicker. We often delegate some of the most crucial and life-altering decisions in our lives to something that has a frightening amount of control over us and may very well choose the life we lead with little or none of our thoughtful input. This is because our bad habits have the power to nullify our good decisions, no matter how passionate or well-intended. And yet we pretend that it's something that we cannot change because it's just the way we are. This is how God made me. It's complicated. I beg to differ. We do have control over who we are, how we live our lives, and how we treat others. So every day that we wake up and are given the blessing of leaving our mark on this day, we have the opportunity and the obligation to change the world for the better by changing who we are, what we contribute in our lives, and the lives of others. Here's an interesting observation. Every buzz, beep, or chirp of our phones are literally retraining our minds to act before we think. And because this has become so common, this abnormal behavior is now deemed acceptable and no cause for alarm. Watch the news tonight and you will find numerous stories of people who acted out before they thought of what they were doing or the consequences of their actions. When watching these events, we often say to ourselves, Who does that? What did they think would happen? What were they thinking? The truth of the matter is, they were not thinking at all. Our habits may or may not land us on the 6 o'clock news, but if we don't think first, the odds of us making wise decisions are just left to chance. And when the odds don't fall in our favor, we encounter numerous negative outcomes and repercussions that add no value to our lives and occupy time that could be better spent on something positive and redeeming, like success. Bottom line, we need to reclaim the time we waste by not taking control over our actions if we want better lives for ourselves and our loved ones. So as you can see, this is pretty serious stuff. So what can you do to prevent your eventual decline down this slippery slope? Well, I'm about to tell you. So if you need to take notes, here is where you want to start. Okay, after this mental beatdown, I owe you at least this, so here's the cure. And I have to say, for those of you who will pray about it first, will have far more success than those who won't. Sorry, I don't make the rules. If you want more power over your life, you have to go to a higher power. Wikipedia also notes that the habit-goal interface or interaction is constrained by the particular manner in which habits are learned and represented in memory. Specifically, the associative learning underlying habits is characterized by the slow, incremental accrual of information over time in procedural memory. Habits can either benefit or hurt the goals a person sets for themselves. 
So before you set goals for yourself that you can actually attain, you first have to change your habits. So here's how to get started. It's as easy as this one simple affirmation that will help you to master success. Here it is. When I see the need to do better in my life, I will center my focus on doing different things and doing things differently. If you are truly committed, either one or both of these things will plant the seed of success. Here it is again. When I see the need to do better in my life, I will center my focus on doing different things and doing things differently. Although it seems simple enough, the results are amazing. If you listen to the story of any successful person or anyone who's done anything great, you will always hear this familiar phrase or something similar that they often describe as an epiphany. The Cambridge Dictionary defines epiphany as a moment when you suddenly feel that you understand or suddenly become conscious of something that is very important to you. Dictionary.com says a sudden intuitive perception or insight into the reality or essential meaning of something, usually initiated by some simple, homely, or commonplace occurrence or experience. In the real world, it sounds more like this. You hear someone tell their story and they would say, When such and such happened, I made a decision. I said to myself, I promised myself, I told myself, from now on, I will never, I can't let that happen again, as long as I live and breathe. When I said that, my whole life changed for the better. So that's it, in a nutshell. You have to be able to make a promise to yourself and keep it. I have to be honest with you. For many of you listening, it all ends right here because many of you don't know how to make and keep a promise to yourself. It's sad but true. You know what's funny about someone who can't keep a promise is that when they make a promise that they won't keep, it's always one that would be too difficult for anyone to keep. So when they fail to keep their promise, it's that it was too hard to keep, and even though you didn't make the promise, they will happily inform you that you couldn't keep that promise either, so you're no better than they are to call them out on it. But I don't want to leave anybody out. So I will add something for you if this is your challenge as well. That's the awesome thing about what I'm asking you to do. Even if you can't keep a promise to yourself, It's the first bad habit you can break by keeping one small promise to yourself. Here's a small promise that everyone can keep. Look, this is not difficult, but it does require some preparation. You really need to make a big deal out of this and give it all of your attention and intention. Look at yourself in the bathroom mirror. And say to yourself with all the intensity and conviction you can muster, and I mean look yourself square in the eye and say to yourself and really, really mean it. And know that nothing will keep this from happening 
come hell or high water, promise to yourself that every day I am able, I will wash my hands. And after you say that, wash your hands. Oh, that's not the end of the exercise. After you wash your hands, I want you to look at yourself in the mirror and say to yourself with the same power and strength, I mean, puff out your chest and say, I did what I said I would do, and I kept my promise. I know this may seem silly to some, but if you do this, I promise you, you will never see yourself the same. From this point forward, without even thinking about it, whenever you wash your hands, you will remember your promise and know that you are capable of keeping your promise. You will also understand that you are capable of doing above and beyond what you promised. You will also note that you kept your promise very early in the day and did not take much effort to keep your promise. Eventually, every time you even hear running water, you will remember your promise and knowing that you are a man or woman of your word will give you a sense of self-assured confidence that you can't even imagine. This is so powerful. I challenge you to try it. With that being said, let me warn you. What I'm offering you is a little guidance and just as your GPS will help you to get to your destination, it will not put gas in your car. It will not signal the turns along the way. It will drop you at your destination, but what you do when you get there is all up to you. Just as you need to program your GPS so that it will provide the guidance, you need to program your mind and be clear about your destination in order for you to get there. It's your life. You need to do the work. You need to take the steps to make it happen. Are you still with me? By now, I'm sure that I've lost quite a few, but that's okay. I'll be the first one to say that this message is not for everyone. This message is not about Facebook likes or attempts to blow up my Twitter feed. I don't expect this message to be popular. I expect it to help someone who really thinks that they need some guidance in making positive changes in their lives. That's all I want is to help someone in need find this message when they need it the most. Take control over their lives and become a wellspring of love, peace, and prosperity and positive vibes wherever they are right now. If you're really serious about making incredible changes in your life, you need to make some commitments. Not to me or anyone else, but to yourself. You have to commit to yourself that this is truly what you want and are willing to do to add to your life everything that you feel you need to live a prosperous life. So herein lies another great secret to success that we have all heard before, but few have really understood its relevance. So here's the work. Start paying close attention to the things that you do without thinking. Your habits. 
Note things that you feel that are your bad habits and why they are bad. The consequences of these bad habits and what you hope to be the result of the change. Next, you need to figure out if you will do things differently or do different things or both to break that habit. In our previous example of washing hands, we chose to do things differently. We added to this simple everyday task a new objective to not only clean our hands but to remind us of our promises that we make to ourselves and to create and enforce a habit of keeping our promises. Sometimes it's best to replace your habit with another good habit and create a positive act to take its place. A positive habit reaps positive outcomes. So not being a bad habit is not enough. It has to have a positive return. So you'll need to envision what your new good habit will do for you in your life and document if this is an action that will get you there. There are many ways to fail, but you have fewer options for success. But with that, the bonus is is you have less options to choose from to get it right. So if one doesn't work, move on to another. Grab a calendar and track the success of your new habit for 30 to 35 days as a solid new behavior. And note how it has changed your life. With practice and success, you can start with one habit a month and work your way up to six or seven new good habits a month. And in the process, the new life of happiness and prosperity that you've been waiting for. That prayer piece is very important as well. But I do understand that some of you may have an aversion to prayer and may not even believe in God at all. I just want you to know that whether or not you believe in God, God still loves you. Some of you may have the wrong impression of God in thinking that he's always angry and looking for every opportunity to punish us for our sins. But this is not the case at all. In the Bible, it clearly states in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Verse 12, Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. It all begins right there. If you call, he will listen. No matter how bad you think your life is right now, it can all turn around in an instant, if you believe. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9-10 through 10 says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. These 
timeless principles are based on the wisdom of the ages and will never become passé. So no matter when you hear this message, the results will be the same. So don't concern yourself about what others may say about your new self and the haters who will surely try to derail your success. Haters are going to hate. So be prepared. You will be surprised at how many people who will see your changes and your progress, who will encourage you one day and then try to pull you backwards and undo the work that you've done the next. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 says, We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves. They are not wise. As you can see, this is something that all of us can do at some level to take control over our lives by choosing our own path and arrive at a destination that we have the power to choose for ourselves that need only be based on who we are right here and now. The only thing you need to get started is God and the motivation. Well, we've just come to the end of another great show. Special thanks to our producer, Donna Hardiman. I'm Michael Fordham, and you've been listening to A Measure of Truth on blogtalkradio.com. But before you go, here's a little something to take with you. Ask God for wisdom daily, but know that your lesson can come from anybody or any situation, good or bad, friend or foe. Watch your thoughts. They become words. And watch words. They become actions. And watch your actions. They become habits. And watch your habits. They become your character. And watch your character. It becomes your destiny. Until we meet again, take care of what becomes of you.